Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And this is Steve Turek, and I'm not this time I'm joined with a actor, legendary actor, actually, who's had over five decades in the theater, television, movies, painter, writer, oh. Nehemiah Persoff. How you doing today, sir? I'm just fine, thank you. I'm I'm so glad to have you here. I read your book, The Many Faces of Nehemiah, recently, which you published um, last year, and it is a wonderful journey of a person who also happens to be an actor and a painter through their life. Yeah. And one of the amazing things I think about it is you didn't start writing your autobiography until you were 100 years old, correct? That's right, 101, actually. 101. And for listeners wondering, Mr. Persoff is 102 as we're doing this. And it just goes to show you that age is just a number. It's really what you do in life. You can always be doing new things and fun and interesting stuff all the way through. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It keeps going. Keeps It, it, it gets more interesting each year, as a matter of fact. I learn more every year. And it goes back to, I had a teacher years ago in high school who told me that every day should be a busy learning working day. And yeah, I think you are the epitome of somebody who takes every day and tries to do something new or interesting. I really do. I, I love to, when, when I, when the day passes where I haven't done anything, I feel cheated because I wasted that day. And the number of days we have is really numbered, so make the most of it. Yeah. Oh, I definitely agree, sir. And uh, you started off your life in Jerusalem, and before you became an actor, I, I guess you could say acting was in your blood. I find it an interesting story about how your dad and your parents' journey to Jerusalem. I don't know if you wanted to share anything about your parents. Sure, certainly. My father was born in uh, a small city in Russia near Odessa. There he belonged to an amateur acting group. And after a while they decided when Zionism was the prevalent thinking of the Jewish people in the diaspora uh, became very hot, so to speak, he became a Zionist and uh, decided to persuade the group to go to Israel, to Palestine then. And they got, they stowed away on a ship. They got from Odessa to Turkey. And after working in Turkey, they spoke a little French. They learned more and did a French play by Molière called The Miser. And after about a year in Turkey, they got to Syria. And in Syria, Syria there was in a French colony, so again, they spoke French, and they did the Molière play again, and then they decided to go to Palestine, which was uh, walking distance of a few weeks. And when they got there, they formed the first Hebrew-speaking theater in modern times in, his, in Jerusalem. I'll tell you a story about that if you, if you want to hear a story about it, my father's Acting in Jerusalem, I think it's interesting. I'll tell you, okay? Okay. 
Okay. When my father and his group started the Hebrew-speaking theater in Jerusalem, they did the Molière play. My father played the lead, the the uh, miser, and uh, a young man by the name of David Ben Gurion, then a newspaper critic, came to review the play. And in the review of my father, he wrote this. Mr. Persoff is a fine actor, but apparently he forgot that he's portraying a Frenchman and not a native Jerusalemite. Now that was very much like the, the reviews that I was afraid of all of my acting life, that they would say Mr. Persoff is too Jewish. Because in trying to act as I did, trying to get intimate with the characters, naturally my own Jewishness came out. And I always had to be very careful not to let too much of it come out because then it changes the meaning of the particular character's actions. And so when <laughs> recent years I saw the review of Ben Gurion and that was very strange for me. Uh, I can go on if you like about actors and accents, but if you want to go that way or not, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm fine with that. I mean, cause I find it interesting now watching a lot of your different movies, how you were able to change your, um, vocal inflections and your dialect to match the characters brilliantly. Yes. Yes. And, and I think I did that because I was trying to find myself, uh, actors say like Gary Cooper and John Wayne and so on, Cary Grant found a commercial, appearance uh, a certain character that was that was acceptable to the camera and acceptable to the audience and that was fine that was it the audience didn't want any movies with them shaken from that particular character when uh, uh, Gregory Peck did a movie with Audrey Hepburn in which he didn't get the girl the audiences hated it and it was a flop so it's, there's a trick to finding who you want to portray on camera. And I had a difficult time finding myself in that way. Uh, I, I tried all kinds of characters, but none of them seemed to me like a character that I wanted to stick with for a lifetime. And so uh, what was the point I'm making now? I'm 102 and allowed to forget a little bit. Oh, there's no problem at all. And uh, the point you're trying to make is the different um, dialects and... Um... Oh, yes, yes, yes. So the dialects that I was doing were really an attempt to see which one would stick to me, which one I could settle on so that I could become a big movie star. But I, I never found it. I remained a supporting character actor, and I was happy being there, too. Yeah. And for listeners wondering, you're, you have hundreds of credits in TV and movies and a long, like I said, over a five-decade career. So it worked for you. And everybody has a different path in order to be to, to, to fulfill that personal success that they want. And I don't mean financial success, but personal success. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. So what is your question? Um, so growing up in Jerusalem, you know, because you, you lived there for your, your first 10 years. It was, yes. What was it like in Jerusalem at that time? 
Jerusalem was probably the most interesting place in the world at that time because it was a, a meeting, or one could say a collision, of the traditional Jewish life, the tradition of 2,500 more years of being guests in other people's homes and being rejected and pogromed and spat on and uh, given less and less privileges. So that the Jewish people, knowing that they would have to leave soon, knew that the only way they can establish a living, make a living, is to become peddlers or storekeepers and things like that. And so the complexion of the Jews became a bunch of storekeepers, really, and some industrialists. And when they came to Palestine, the Zionists, the people who were on fire with Zionism, came to rebuild their country and also to rebuild the Jewish nation. So when the the, the Russian, the Polish, and Yemenite Jews came, they came with the purpose of building the country and building the people, and that's in order to build the country, they had to have people who worked, not only buyers and sellers, but people who worked with their hands, beginning with street cleaner and, and garbage collector and waiters and carpenters, electricians. That was looked up to. And every day I would hear the glory of labor, and there were songs about the glory of labor. And I was determined when I was a boy that I would be a worker. That was the highest thing that I could aspire to. Because in our culture, we were trying to change ourselves. When I went to America, I was disappointed in that the Jewish boys here didn't know anything about the pride of their culture, of the pride of what they did as a nation. They knew nothing about that. They just knew that they had to make enough money to get along on. And that was just at the beginning of the Depression that I came to America. So I had a great difference with them. And uh, I'll tell you a story. It was our first election day in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. And it was customary there on the third, uh, on, on election day, to build a little bonfire on the street. Of course, it hurt the asphalt down there, but the cops tried to stop you, but we did it anyway. So two weeks, for two weeks, we went around looking for wood all over in the markets and hiding it on the factory roof at the end of the block. And on election day, we brought the, the, uh, the wood down and prepared to start a fire. When the kids around the corner, the Barrett Street gang, the Italian gang came and started taking our wood away. I myself did not think that that was a proper thing to do. I looked around for my tough guy friends, the Jewish guys. They're all on the steps ready to run upstairs. They didn't want to fight. I went over to the leading guy there on the Italian gang and I told him, it wasn't right that they're taking wood, and before I could see what was happening, his fist went into my eye, and I got my first black eye in America. I looked around at my friends, the Jewish guys, they all ran upstairs. So, 
that was one of my first that my first black eye and my first experience with Jews who were not ready to fight. I came from Palestine, where the Israeli Jews were. From the beginning of my existence, felt the finger on history pointing to them as being the generation who will have bear the brunt of a war of independence. And I was determined that if ever anything happened in Israel, I would obviously go back and fight next to my brothers and sisters. It's, it's interesting how different places you go to, how you find out who your true friends are that will have your back. That's right. Yes, yes, yes. Let me continue just for a moment. When years later I became a member of the Actors Studio, that's the Actors School started by Lacazan. It was one of the most sought-after things to happen to you is to become a member of the studio. Uh, my life changed. I be, it became really possible. I began to see the possibility of becoming a professional actor. Until then, I wasn't sure. When I got in the studio, I was sure. And that was in 1947, early in the year. And later in the year, a war broke out in Israel. Obviously, I was going to go to Israel to fight with my brothers and sisters and support them. But... I saw here the possibility of a career. And I saw people right next to me getting jobs and becoming big in the business. And for some reason, I could not get myself to go to Palestine. And that played havoc with me. I, I just was torn, torn. Until... Something happened to me in my mind, and I just cut Israel out of my head. I don't know how I did it. And uh, I became an actor. And to this day, I'm embarrassed and feel crappy that I did not go to fight and support my fellow Israelites. That's it. That's that's an amazing um, tale, um, story right there, and I, I really don't know what to say in response to it because it's everybody has to make those decisions and live with them, and yeah, who knows what path would have went if you would have chose uh, how your life would have went if you would have chose that different path. I mean, it, it's who hard knows, to say. who knows, yeah, yeah, my life would have been completely different, but uh, whether I'd be happy or not, I don't know, I don't know. Now, one of the things I think that brought you happiness in Jerusalem that I, I believe you still do today is ice-cold sweet lemons. <laughs> How did you think of that? My goodness. When I was a kid on Saturdays, you know, every, everything was terribly still in Jerusalem. Nothing happened. No automobiles, no nothing. It was so quiet. My friend and I used to walk down the hill over to the soccer field, which was not too far from us. And there we had a special place around the side of the tent. It, it was a sort of bleachers covered by a tent. And we found a way to sneak in without having to pay. And so we had an entree to the ball games all the time. In the, in the, between, between uh, uh, what's it called? 
between uh, when when you play a game, you you divide it into certain quarters or oh yeah, quarters the, or, or halves. Yeah. So at half halftime, halftime that's what it was. At halftime, the local team generally uh, played against the British team. And the British team would get on one side of the field and the Israeli team would get on the other side of the field and sit down rest and a bucket of ice and and lemons, sweet lemons, would be brought to them. And that was made everybody's mouth drool in the stands. My friend and I used to walk down there and I had a friend, Khodorov uh, uh, was his name, he was a right fielder. And I said, hi, Khodrov. And he said, hello, come here, come here, come here, come here. And he always called us over and, and, and let us have some of the ice-cold sweet lemons. And it was so sweet. That's when I, years later when I lived in the United States in Tarzana, we had a very big swimming pool and all my friends used to come on weekends. And they knew that one of the things, if they were, in, if it was in season, I would get all the sweet lemons that I could and put them on ice. And all of us knew we had to do the ritual of eating the sweet lemons. And that, to this day, my mouth is watering from that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you didn't just eat them. I mean, you, I think, had a certain way where you would suck the juice from them. Yeah, you bite the end, you bite the end, you spit it out, and then you squeeze the lemon until the juice comes out. And you you, you never open the lemon, actually. You just squeeze all of the juice out of it. And it's such a great taste. Wow. My eldest, yeah. my eldest brother and I, we both love lemons, and I've never thought of doing what you do, where you know, bite the end and, and squeeze in the juice. We would usually cut them and then just eat, the, eat them and like you would oranges and, uh, uh-huh. and we always enjoyed it. So I'm now want to try, um, this ice cold, sweet lemons, the way you did it, just to see what it tastes like. Cause I, I think it's I think wonderful. You, you'll, you'll thank me for the rest of your life. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I read that in your book, my mouth was watering. Cause I was like, I got to get some nice sweet lemons now. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I never had that intention. I wondered. Uh, I thought that people reading the story would would say what inventive people they had. They had really no money, nothing. Uh, food was rationed, but lemons they had. They had lemons. Well, I mean, and that's amazing. Where certain things are done. Differently than we would, uh, that, like people nowadays would probably think of using them because of the limited resources and people would find sure. um, joy sure. in things that people would never think to try. Sure, sure. Yeah. And, and speaking of trying, what led you to try acting as a profession? You know, what, what led you down that path? Well, I think the fact is we mentioned it before, I think, maybe not, but uh, when I was a child, I knew I had certain powers. For instance, I could control my anger, and I knew that if I wanted something, I would get so angry that they said, okay, go ahead, take And I could 
fake sadness, I could fake crying, I could fake any fake anything that I wanted to in order to get what I wanted. I realized after a while that I had certain strength of making people believe what was not really true, something that I was pretending to be. So it was natural for me to get into it. When I was a kid in, in, in trade school, by the way, when I chose a trade school or an academic school, I chose a trade school for a high school. And there I couldn't keep up with the boys at all because I was always making stories up and, and telling, you know, reading poems to them. The English teacher thought I was great and he had me reading all the time. But uh, that did not help me become a good electrician. And when I came out of school, I got a job and I hated it. And then I thought, well, electrician is not for me. Maybe and becoming an engineer might be the answer. So I studied all summer long and memorized logarithms and uh, took the entrance exam to Cooper Union. That's a university supported in a degree with government money that used to give many scholarships. Well, I passed the exam and got a scholarship, went to the first lecture, and there I looked around me and found all of the geeks there, strange-looking guys, and the guy, made, the teacher lectured us on something, and I just yawned away. I was so bored by what he was saying. After working a whole summer to get into that school, I left it after that first lecture. Never came back. And then I thought, well, since I have this knowledge, maybe I'll take an exam for the New York subway. They're looking for assistant signalmen. I got a job in the subway, and I loved it. And there I had, I worked midnight, so I had days to spare and somehow found my way into an acting school. And that sort of started me. Yeah, because it's, it's, I always find it amazing how people start off going in that path. Yeah. What was exactly your question? Well, what led you during the path of becoming an actor? And eventually, your path led you to the actor's studio, as you said right, earlier, yeah. in 1947. And yes. You, you were that was that the first group of the in the actor studio. That was the very first actor studio. Yes, uh, these were the Kazan and uh, and Bobby Lewis and Cheryl Crawford were all associated with the group theater, which was a predecessor of the actor studio. Uh, but that was about seven or eight years before that. It, it dissolved before the studio started. And uh, the studio became a place for actors who were well-known. Brando was in it. Uh, Johnny Garfield was in it. Uh, Francis Tone. Uh, all, all, all people wanted to be a part of the studio. Lawrence Olivier came to visit other people. Uh, uh, what was I heading for? I forgot. I figure uh, you were talking about how you got started in the actor's studio. and Oh, yes, 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 yes. I, before I got to, to audition for the actor's studio, I spent the summer in stock. 
And in stock, they are permitted to make mistakes or do whatever, because Sam Goldwyn is not going to come and look at the show. So there's no big audience, no reviewers that are important in summer stock. And, you, and I was assigned a kind of a character that I would never do in real life. I, I generally would be cast as a worker, as a tough kid, and so on. But uh, here... Uh, I was cast in a George Bernard Shaw's play, The Devil's Disciple, the role of Dick Dudgeon, the lead. I never would have gotten that in, in New York, but there I did it, and I got good reviews. So when I came to New York and I met a guy who told me that Suzanne is having auditions for the actor's studio, I thought of what I would do. I thought maybe I'll do something by Clifford Odette, which has to do with workers. And But I thought, no, I've done this. I'll do it for, for Kazan, too. So he asked me what I was going to do when I came again. I said, I'm going to do Dick Dudgeon in The, in the Devil's Disciple. And uh, he said, what? I said, the devil. he said, all right, go ahead, knowing that he would never accept it. I did it. And I thought I did all right. And he said, well, I'll let you know. And I knew that let you know means forget it. I went home, and three days later, I got a card inviting me to the studio. And there I went to the meeting, and there I went and sat next to some of these important people. And uh, Kazan spoke, and he said, I auditioned thousands of actors, and you guys are the cream of the crop. And that was about what he said. And I walked out of there and I was walking 10 feet off the ground. It was the greatest thing that could happen. For me, a complete unknown that never was recognized to sit right next to these big famous actors from Hollywood was something. So that was sort of the beginning of me at the Actors. It was a very exciting time. I loved it. I loved it because it it made me feel like I was accepted in a profession that rejected me in terrible ways before that. I'll tell you what I mean by rejected. Okay. In 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 order to get work, actors generally generally go to agents offices and try to get them to represent them and so I thought I'd do that so I went to an agent's office a very famous agent talked to the girl there and she called the agent he said I'm busy right now I'll see him as soon as I can she told me that so I sat down in the waiting hall for about uh, four hours finally the agent came out just for the street and walked, started walking. I said, excuse me, I came to see. He said, well, I'm busy right now. I have to go. I said, well, when can I, I don't know, talk to her. I have to go. And he went. And I was so put down, so degraded, so angry. I never, ever looked for an agent again. It was the rejection of an actor is not only a rejection of what he does. It's not like a carpenter. If you have a, a chair that you made that's not acceptable, they say your chair was not good, that's all. But when an actor is rejected, 
He is rejected. His entire makeup, his height, his ethnicity, his looks, his hair, his nose, his eyes, everything is on the block. And you are completely, completely degraded and thrown out to dry. Thrown out to dry. I think that's a terrible thing. So anyway, uh, it was so great to be in the studio and accepted. And their agents came in. I got an agent, and I was in the swing. I was an accepted actor. Great thing to be in the studio for an actor. And that's and that's the thing is, it's with actors is finding that acceptance and being brave enough to put yourself out there. Yeah, because you know, you, you like you said, you were going to get. In some places, some cases, ridicule from people just be, but they don't understand what it's like to go out there and put so much of yourself out there at that time. Absolutely, absolutely. And the more of yourself you put into it, the more you're afraid that it will not be accepted because uh, it's a rejection. Uh, I haven't been through it, but I imagine it's a terrible thing to be put down by an agent. I know I did a, a, a play with Charles Lawton, a very famous British-American British actor. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, did you know Charles Lawton was it? Yeah, Charles Lawton I know, and um, the play I think you're talking about is Galileo. Yes. But I love Charles Lawton as an actor. A lot of his movies, and the only movie he ever directed was, what, Night of the Hunter. I've, you know, I never got to see him in theater. For obvious reasons, but it was to, to see his work as an actor and, and, and director. I can only imagine what it was like to work with him. Yeah. Now I forgot what I was going to tell you about when I started telling you about it. Um, Charles you, Lawton. I think you were saying with, with Charles Lawton, you were going to you were doing a play with him and how you're and how he um, with acceptance of people's different styles. I think that's what we we're. Go- I think that's what we were talking about leading into it. Yeah, well, well, uh, Lawton had a style of his own that was certainly not what we call in the studio the method. The the way of acting taught at the studio is called the method, short for the Stanislavski method. Uh, when Lawton hired me. I read for him about five, six times because I'm not a good reader, but he liked something about me. And he kept re- reading me, reading me until he accepted me. And uh, he constantly used to run down the actors' studios being the fakers and liars and the horrible things. One day, he came to a scene that he could never solve as an actor, which surprised me. And he stopped rehearsal and he asked the director if he could go to, uh, if he could take about an hour. And he went, he went to the museum and then eventually he went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. He told me before he went in, he said I was born Catholic, but I never practiced it. He went into the church and he genuflexed and went here, there, there, there. Finally came out, took me by the arm and asked me to tell Joe Losey, the director, to set up scene. 12, which was a scene that he always had trouble doing. He did the scene and he broke down and cried and then he cried again. Went into his dressing room and spent about 10 minutes crying there. 
And then he came out and he said to me, all right, now we've had our cry. Let's go out there and pin this down technically so the audience can have its cry. Meaning that he wanted to translate that scene that he did into the kind of external artistic language that he used that became part of his performance. I make myself clear? Oh, exactly. Because yeah. I think one of All the right. things with Charles Lawton, with his style, was he loves the ebb and the flow, the, the pacing of how yes. the scene is done. Yes, yes, yes. And so uh, uh, Charles had run down the actor studio all the time. But when he came to a scene that he could not solve, he tried a method that's very, very close to what we were practicing. So that brings me to this point, that an actor, if he tells you what he does when he acts, is generally lying to you because no actor knows what it is to... No, no actor knows exactly what is happening when he is achieving the moment of creation. And now Lawton himself, who is such an expert actor, did not really know that what he was looking for was some, what he, what he did at the moment of creation was different from what he said he did. He said he was interested in certain rhythms of words and he was very good at that. But when he got stuck and could not do what he wanted to do, he had to go to something else. That being the method. That's clear? I think that's clear. And I think that's a part of being a brilliant actor is not, is trying multiple ways to get to where you need to be and not just think I can only use one way of doing exactly. that's Yes, that's exactly right. When we started the actor's studio, after the session, we would go down to a cafe downstairs. And I would generally go with Steve Hill and Eli Wallach and Annie Jackson and other actors and sit in the booth and discuss what we heard. And every one of us came up with something different. And, and Strasser was aware of that. He said, that's okay, that's fine. Uh, when I worked with Barbara Streisand, one time she said to me, uh, I, Elise Strasberg came backstage to see me when I did Funny Girl. And he said, you were wonderful. I said, Lee, I'm so sorry. I came so late that I didn't have time to do the exercises you gave me to do before going on stage. And Lee said, that's all right. For you, not doing the exercise apparently was the best thing because you were great. So Lee knew that he went, he didn't expect you to just take one thing from him. I myself took several small things from him and then I didn't want to be bothered with him because I was happy with what I was doing. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, I, I agree. To me, it's, the way to do it is um, some people say it's stealing. Some people say it's borrowing. It's learning from how other people approach things and in finding what works best for you. And that takes time and experience. Yes. 
Now, the thing is, time and experience is such that whatever method you've learned, whatever technical stuff you've learned in your life, as you get older, you throw it away. You get less and less and less. You do less and less and less technical work as you grow older. It just becomes natural to you. You speak the lines as you say them, and you feel the feelings. They come to you automatically without you having to do any kinds of technical work. I don't know if other, if other actors found it the same, but with me for about the last 20 years when I worked as an actor, I did not use any technique at all. I just went on and spoke my lines, and it was fine. And I, and I can tell when, when looking at your work because I, I think it's the person where people say, oh, that person is a natural actor. And I think to me what that means is where you're able to perform and people can't tell that you're acting. They think you're just playing yourself, but you actually are playing that character, but you're doing it at such a level that people don't realize you're acting so they don't think you're acting, but you're acting. That's You're not. <laughs> yeah. They're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I agree with you. And I, I think, um, I'm not sure how many times, I'm not sure if you worked with James Garner, but I would look at him as one of the, the epitome of natural actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now there, there's one other play I wanted to bring up before we move into your movies that you did. And it's Peter Pan because yes. you, you worked with one of my favorite actors, Boris Karloff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Boris was a wonderful, simple man, kind man. And I used to like to stop in his, in his dressing room whenever I came in to say a few words to him. And I enjoyed talking with him. And uh, he was always tolerant. You know, he was very, he was instrumental. I think, I think, I'm not sure, but I think, in the creation of the actors and screen actors guild. Before that, actors were very poor. They had no money, no nothing. But after the union got organized, actors began to do very well. And so I think Boris was one of the actors that started that. And then when I was working with him, the uh, American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, AFTRA, was organized, and they called for a meeting and after the show, I went there with a few other people, and the hall was empty except for way, way down front was one seat occupied, and that was Boris Carlo. One day, I had a vacation. I went to Israel for two months, I think it was, or one month. When I came back, I was very tired, and I overslept and came to the theater just in time to get my clothes on. My understudy was ready to go, and everybody was preparing to go and do the show with uh, my understudy. And I came in time to do it, and after the show, Carlos very kindly asked me into his room, and he said to me, you know, acting in theater is a collective effort. It affects not only two, but three, but four, but a hundred people. All of the people involved are banking on the actors. And if you come late, you can ruin that. 
So one of the most important things for you to learn is to come to the theater on time. I was always on time after that. And I always thanked him for his kindness. He was a good man. I've, I've talked to other people that have worked with Mr. Karloff and everybody always said how he was just a, a kind, gentle person and was very caring about everybody. You know, um, not, yes. just, not just fellow performers, but the, the fans and everything. He was just so nice yes. and generous. Yes, yes, yes. I think he was a truck driver before he became an actor. Tall man, yeah. And he did a lot of different things. And you did a lot of different theater work, but I want to focus a little bit for a while on your movies. And uh-huh. you were in... A lot of TV shows, like I said, but tons and tons of different movies. And as you said, being a character actor, sometimes it was a smaller role, sometimes it was a bigger role. It all depends on what the you know what you were cast for. Yeah. And so I just want to ask you some of your memories on working on some of these different productions. And I think we'll start with On the Waterfront with you know Marlon Brando and um, Rod Steiger, and, and directed by Kazan. I mean. It's it's just what a way to start out early on and on the waterfront. <laughs> I was a student of Kazan's when after class one day he came and put his arm around my neck. He had a way of doing that. And he said, Nikki, do you want to earn a hundred dollars? And I said, Sure. He said, tell me where to go and come to the theater, that'd be a taxi driver. I had no lines to speak. So I had a neighbor who was a taxi driver. I got a hat from him. I wore his hat, went there. And uh, I was impressed by the way the uh, taxi that we sat in was cut into different pieces so the camera could come in. And I was Im- impressed by everything technical that took place in the studio to make us feel that we were on the street at night with the lights changing as we drove. That's all I knew. And then when I came on stage, one thing happened that I wanted to tell you about that's interesting, and I'm not passing judgment, I'm just reporting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marlon Brando came on to do his close-up in that scene. And he said to Kazan, uh, I'm not quite ready, I'd like to have some time to prepare and Kazan said, you sure go to your room, sit down and prepare, and then when you're ready, come on out. Steiger, who was his partner in the scene, said to Kazan, I want to ask you something. If I were to come to you and tell you that I was not ready to do the close-up, would you say go to your room and prepare? Kazan said, no way, no, I would not. And Steiger said, why not? Kazan said, because you're Rod Steiger, and he's Marlon Brando. And Steiger just walked away. Anyway, uh, I'm not sure that I approved of his going into his room, but that's another matter. It's a technical matter. Well, everybody... Certain directors um, have to handle people different ways, and whether good or bad. Yes, it's. I guess you're yes. trying to find whatever works best to get the best performance from them. And uh, 
Yeah. I mean, Kazan had had an extraordinary understanding of what the actor was going through. Now, I did not know what the hell he wanted me to do, so he never talked to me. But before the scene, he stuck his head where the window was, and he said to me, that son of a bitch killed your mother. And while I was thinking about that, the the camera started rolling, and the camera zoomed in, and uh, I really did nothing special. But it's a great moment because the combination of my eyes at that moment and the camera moving in which made it a, of the entire film for me. Of course, I didn't, didn't work much except for that. But it, it, that moment came alive. Yeah. But that was because of Kazan. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. Well, he definitely was. I was so, I was so lucky to have brushed up against him. Uh, his enthusiasm for theater and movies was so great that you couldn't help but have it rub off on you. That is true. When you have somebody that's really into it and, and, and charismatic and knows how to lead people to where they need to go, um, it, it's, it's always great to have that person there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, is it true that you almost had a, a, a Marlon Brando with one of the most, most famous roles was almost Jewish yes. in The Godfather? Yes. Yes, that was heartbreaking for me. Uh, about four months before they shot the film, my agent got a call from a producer at, uh, forget forget what I think was Columbia or something like that, asking if I would be free to do the role of uh, Corleone in The Godfather in such and such a time. And my uh, agent said, I, uh, he called me and he asked me, he said, sure, I'd love to do it. So for four months, I was thinking that I was going to be the godfather. And then, of course, there's a famous story about uh, uh, Brando uh, inviting the director over Coppola and putting on makeup in front of him and suddenly changing into the character. And Coppola was sold and hired him. When he hired him, of course, a couple wanted to help me out a little bit. He said, would you like to come and read for the producers, for the Hollywood producer who finds the horse's head at his bed? And I was so disgusted at not having gotten a lead that I said, no, I don't want any part at all. And so I refused to be in the film because I was so deeply hurt, deeply hurt. But... He was great. I loved what he did. If I had done it, I would do it differently, but that's the way it is. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's two different actors, two different approaches, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's, it's always one of those what could have been, you know, we'll, we'll never know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but there's no question that, that uh, uh, Brando was great in the role. Absolutely. Well, I'm not arguing that. I'm just, it would just be interesting to see, you know, if, what your take would have been and what would have happened with it historically afterwards. Oh, probably, yeah, probably to change my life. I don't know whether I would have been happy or not becoming a more recognized, more stopped on the street. I, I think that there's a point between 
of where I am as an actor, which satisfies me, and where Frank Sinatra is, where he can't walk without people grabbing him and tearing pieces of clothes off and things like that. So uh, maybe it's a good thing that I, I, I guess it's a good thing, because I always think that what happens to me is for the good. It probably is. I think a lot of people want to be famous, and then once they're famous, they realize maybe I didn't want to. Be, you know, I wouldn't. They want success, but they might not want that fame that comes with it because it does pay. It, it makes it harder to go out in public. Yes, yes, yes. yes. When I first started uh, becoming a recognized actor, I did a Playhouse ninety with uh, some well-known actors. One of them invited me for dinner, and we went to have dinner. He had a few drinks before and started to tell me about his life, about how terribly sad he was because he was alone. He had no wife, no children. And it was amazing for me who had thought all of these years about the greatness of becoming known that you could be a well, this guy was a well-known actor. You could be a well-known actor and still be as unhappy as possible. He was so unhappy. But uh, I think it was a good thing I met him because it, it, it sort of rounded out the picture for me mm-hmm. by the Hollywood actor. There was a thing with Playhouse 90 where I think it was with Victor Jory, Mary Astor, and I think James. Oh, Gunn, yeah. <laughs> and, and autographs. Yes, yes, yes. We, uh, one day they invited me to go and have uh, uh, lunch with them. This was at the uh, farmer's market in in uh, Los Angeles. Um, Los Angeles. So we went and ate there, and on the way back, we were just about to go into the building when Victor Joy saw a bunch of autograph seekers. He said to us, we better run in because they'll come here and they'll stop us, we'll be late. So we started running, and just then somebody said, Mr. Persoff, can I have your autograph, please? There were these three very famous actors with me, and he said, Mr. and they all were dumbfounded, and I stopped and I wrote, I asked the guy's name, and he told me his name, and I wrote good luck and thank you for da-da-da-da-da-da. And then I signed it, and Victor Joy said to me, you know, you don't have to write a whole letter. He just wanted your damn autograph. There was an annoyance in his voice, and I realized that I have to be very careful and not to take away the glory of their position in the business and indicate to them that there's a new generation coming. The old generation was always afraid of losing their position, but they do. You have to. Mm-hmm. He lost his, and I lost mine, and everybody has to. Yeah. I find that an interesting story how, you know, it shows you moving up in the world and people starting to recognize the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Now, in Some Like It Hot, you had a role that you steal scene after scene after scene that you're in. And it's just amazing. Uh, 
you know, you know, you're with little Bonaparte. It's just, I had, what was it like in some Lake Kentucky? Was it Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon, Billy Wilder directed? Well, when uh, I prepared for the scene, I thought of Napoleon being very uh, a leader, a uh, 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 gangster's union leader, like the guy in the waterfront was in Anastasia. As it was, I, uh, Charles Vetter, who was the director, called me up to his room in Central Park South to discuss the part. And then he said to me, you know, I can tell you about Anastasia all day long, but you really won't understand him until you meet him. And he happens to be coming here in about 15 minutes. So I waited, and he didn't come, and then I waited some more. I waited a full hour, and he didn't come, so I said I'd go, and I took the elevator down. In the lobby of that building were newspapers then, and the headlines were, Anastasia murdered at a barber chair. I realized then that I was not just playing around, that this was a serious business, and that uh, I, I, I have to a little bit be a little bit careful about whom I'm portraying and how I'm portraying them. So, the Comacheros, you got to work yes. with the legendary Duke, John Wayne. I mean, it's, yes. it's one of my favorite movies, and your role in it, it's, I, I, there's two things I'm going to ask you. What was it like working with John Wayne? And the other one, what was it like being in a wheelchair where, you, as an actor, not being able to utilize your body maybe the way you normally would use it? Yeah, well... Uh... John Wayne was a generous person, very quiet and uh, considerate. One day, he and I were doing a scene, and he did a take, and it was quite emotional. And uh, then uh, uh, was it the director, who's the director? Uh, Michael Cortez. Michael Cortez, yeah. Michael Cortez died soon after he did this film. And uh, Michael Cassie says, cut, and uh, let's do another one. So they did another take, and the other take was not so good, and Cassie said, Prince will use that. And I said to, to John, uh, I said, uh, I think that the first one was better. So he said, we'll print them both. Curtis was standing there, and Curtis says to me, are you directing this film, or am I? And I felt put in place because I had no business telling John that his first take was good, because the first take was better for me. It was more emotional. But the fact is that Don, John, Goff, John Wayne's, the John Wayne's style of acting was altogether different. And the second take, which I thought was not so good, was really the proper take. I was wrong. And Curtis was right. So that's where we were at that point. Then later on, we're filming, and it's very hot. And I'm standing next to uh, Wayne, and I said, it's really hot here. And he said, yeah. He walked away, came back with a few stage hands, 
and they threw a whole screen across about a football field side. And uh, Curtis was standing by and said to Wayne, that was a very good idea, John. And uh, John Wayne said, don't thank me, thank Nikki." And Curtis looked at me and he didn't say a word because he still did not excuse me for interfering with his job in the previous day. You have to be careful. You have to be very careful. It is it is hard when dealing with people with different egos and styles and and um, yeah and, and um, different levels. Yes. And and, and speaking yeah. of egos and style, you played a character in the Big Show, who yes. had the ego and the style, and it was it was a really good portrayal with Cliff Robertson, Esther Williams, Robert Vaughn, and. Yeah. Yeah. Are you referring to the time when I tore a muscle in my back? Well, yeah, that, that, that's the, I think that's the one you do yeah. muscle. I was yeah. just trying to, you know, I was in- when, when, when I was doing, uh, this circus picture, I was playing a flyer that catches the girl who comes off the other trapeze. Now I performed on trapeze. And I thought this was an opportunity for me to impress this, particularly Esther Williams, who had a big crush on. Because when I was a youngster, I did weightlifting. And I was very good at being doing bar work. So when I was here on the trapeze, I thought, by God, I can do this. I can swing upside down. Sure, no problem. I can grab her. I can do this thing on film. I don't want to double it all. So the director said, okay, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. And then, yeah. So I did my hand over hand climbing up to the to the uh, place where I sit on the, uh, on, uh, on the rope. Mm-hmm. And I did that in rehearsal several times. It all right. Then just before the show, the final rehearsal, I did it. And I felt a terrible pang in my back, and somebody looked at it, it was all black and blue. I'd apparently torn something there. So I felt very bad about that, but uh, the uh, actor, the double, the real catcher, put me on his shoulders and brought me up and sat me on the bar, and they pretended that I was catching, but I was not. I had to just do the close-up, and then... So I did the, the, uh, this was before, before I tore my, uh, the muscle in my back the day before when I caught the other flyer, I pretended to catch the other flyer and I did until we came we, at the moment that you transfer weights is there's no weight at the moment that you and the flyer and the girl are at the same place and you change hands, you're not feeling any weight, but when you go down, you begin to feel. So when I was up and I caught her up there, it was okay. Then when I swung down, she began to weigh a ton, and I said, let go, let go, let go, and she did, and she went down. And the uh, the director said, okay, I think I could use that. So that was okay. But I wasn't sure that he wouldn't, so the other thing that I told you about later, the real flyer, 
coming there and putting me up, and he did the catching. And seeing the film, I never know whether whether he caught he he, he photographed me, uh, whether he photographed me on the uh, uh, trapeze or my uh, real guy. So I never knew which one I saw because the guy, the real guy that did it, looked very much like me. Mm-hmm. Now I was so concerned then that I would not impress Esther Williams that at the end of the show I was supposed to stand there in my leotard while a, a short person brought out a rhinoceros, stood about five feet from me, and fed him a cabbage. And the rhinoceros up, and then was supposed to go back, but the rhinoceros put his eye on me and just stood there and looked at me. Now the director of the of the move of the of the circus, whom I was playing, came to me and he said, "You're going to stand there, but no matter what the rhinoceros does, don't ever run because they can run faster than you." So I didn't know what to do. I was standing there, the rhinoceros looking at me, and finally I thought, well, the hell with that, I'm going to run. <laughs> and just before I ran, the rhinoceros turned around and walked off stage. So that was so, re- I'm so relieved. So relieved. That, that, is, that, okay. is, that is interesting, because I know when, when, you, when you meet those animals up close, they're a lot bigger than when you think. You know, when <laughs> That's right, yeah. That's right. That's right. But I made friends with a lot of monkeys, and uh, a lot of people who worked on the, the circus. I was impressed by the fact that the poor people never got enough money. They get paid a little bit, never got enough money to go and look for another job. So they were stuck being circus people all of their lives. Not that they could do anything else, but uh, they they really had to work and uh, keep themselves in shape, juggle all the time, whatever it is that they do. Yeah, because it, it, especially for the trainers, which was uh, every day they had to be with their animals to keep them um, yes. in condition and yes. training so they don't have any... Yeah. There was one time I was at a New Year's Eve party, and the girl whose father owned the circus, she was the uh, the bear trainer, the lion trainer. And uh, it was uh, 4 o'clock in the morning at the party, and she said goodbye, and I said, why? She said, I have to go feed the animals. And her father explained to me that she must feed the animals at a certain time Every day of the year, she cannot take any day off. And I thought again, wow, you have to be really devoted in order to be a performer in a circus. That is true. And there's another one of your movies that I saw I'd never seen before. And when I was preparing for the interview, I saw it. The Hook with Kirk Douglas, Nick Adams, and Robert Walker. Um... And you played at the, the the captain for a merchant marine vessel. Yes, that's right. It was it was it was a wonderful film. I don't know if you had any memories working on that film at all, because it, it it's a very good film for listeners that haven't seen it. Before I think about that, I want to finish up with I, I forgot to tell you that 
the fact that I did not run away from the rhinoceros mm-hmm. made me feel that I could go to Esther Williams and say, how was that? <laughs> and I went to her and I said, how was that? I had the courage to stand there. And she said, so what? so important for me to impress her and she said so what (laughs) and then uh, Lamas came and they they were lovers at that time that was the end of that that was the end of that yeah that is funny (laughs) now now you asked me about the hook yes the hook the hook was an interesting film. Nothing much happened except this. One day we were shooting out there, Catalina, and while we were waiting for the crew to get ready and everything, we used to fish over the side of the boat, never caught anything. Then they called, come on, do the scene, and I tied the, the rope up to the side of the, of the, of the, uh, the rope up to the side of the boat. And uh, I went to do the scene and in the middle of the scene I looked through the side of my eyes saw that the rope was pulling there's a fish on there I said the hell with the scene I broke everything I left the scene and went out and pulled up and there was a big uh, sunfish and Kirk Douglas came by immediately got a pair of gloves I don't know where he had them and he took the fish from me and put it on his shoulder and took a photograph and I said, Kirk, I caught that fish. He said, that's nothing. Forget it. And he, that, that photograph appeared in newspapers. But it was my fish. But he was the boss. Yeah, that was about uh, a few other things happened, but nothing in particular. Uh, I enjoyed being uh, on Catalina and uh, the ocean there. And one night, Kirk got a, a chartered a boat and threw a big party on there. And I enjoyed that very much. My wife and I were there. And uh, that was about it for that. So I became good friends with him. He had just done a movie in Israel called The Juggler, mm-hmm. in which, and he had to meet with a bunch of uh, Israeli sailors, and he learned memorized his speech in Hebrew. And he gave me that speech and was perfect, letter perfect. I've seen The Juggler, and again, listeners haven't seen it. It's, it's a very good film. So it's. Yeah, it was good, yeah. Now, you were in an all star cast. You were in a cast, in an all star movie where it had like a cast of everybody, you know, a lot of, you know, one of those big ones, Voyage of the Damned, with oh, ton, yeah. tons of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me tell you about the, the last scene of that. The, uh, uh, the, the regular director was busy at one time towards the end of the film watching uh, dailies, and he had a second unit director sitting on the camera way out with hundreds of extras there, and I was the chief rabbi supposed to say a prayer to the audience. And uh, I felt going out there and doing the prayer that I didn't quite make it. So I went over to the assistant, to the guy there who was directing, and I asked if we could do another take. He said, no, look, everybody's gone home now. The people are gone. The technicians are gone. Everybody's gone. So uh, 
He said, yeah, so he said, you, 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 we can do another take, but I insist. Generally, after shooting there, I go home immediately, but this time I went to the studio looking for George Stevens, the director, and Max Lancito, who played Jesus, came out and said, what are you doing here so late? I told him that I didn't feel that the scene was right. He said, I saw it. It was great. Don't worry about it. But I hung about there until it got really dark at 8 o'clock. And then I went home. In the morning when I woke up, I got a telegram from Israel telling me that my mother died just exactly the same moment when I was saying the prayer. And I felt I didn't quite make it. That was very strange. That is, I mean, that is, I don't know what to say. I mean, that is something that it's just... um, yeah, how things just come across, and how like some people have a like will wake up in the middle of the sleep because they know something bad happened. I think, yes, yes. I think that was the same way when you were saying that prayer. You knew somewhere deep inside that this had more meaning than normal. Absolutely, yes, yes. But in, but in Voyage of the Damned, um, I find I find the, the thing that so interesting to me is a lot of people don't realize it's based off true events with the ship that the Germans sent across to Cuba, um, yes. a PR stunt and had everybody going, you know, and everybody had to go back and your, yes. your scene with Maria shell and Catherine Ross. I don't know uh-huh. if you remember, but as, as, as Catherine Ross's father, it's, it's, yes, it's I, I remember that well. But it's so touching. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Well, there's nothing to say about that except that uh, it was very moving for me because uh, Maria Schell and I are husband and wife, and we're going from Germany. We're escaping from Germany. We have a daughter who's lived in Spain, in Cuba now for a number of years, and she's done very well. She's very wealthy, and we found out just before meeting her that she was uh, kind of a high-priced prostitute. And so here was the job of greeting her and happy that she's doing so well, but at the same time knowing that her life was saved by uh, an act that we would not approve of. It was a very interesting scene to play because on the one hand, we were so happy to see her on the other hand, so unhappy that she's a prostitute. And yeah, but it worked out very well. The girl was fantastic, and so was Maria. Yeah. And so are you. And, and, and to give listeners an idea, they're, they're reunited after years, and, and she only has like a few minutes with her parents before the ship's going to have to leave to go back to Europe yeah. and so yeah. this could be the, the final goodbyes. And um, Maria shell playing the wife is quizzing her about where the money came from that she's giving you guys. Yes. And, and your character is just forget about that. Just let's enjoy this moments that we have these precious moments. And mm-hmm. oh, it was wonderful. It was, it, it, it was a very mm-hmm. powerful and wonderful scene. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me tell you something about uh, the, when I was doing the, the, the movie, The Voyage of the Damned, 
It was about people, uh, about Jewish people in uh, in uh, Germany who were permitted to leave the country on a ship, but nobody, not Cuba, not the United States, not England, wanted to accept them. So I wanted to know more about these people, and one day I was in Toronto. I met a man and a woman. The guy was on the ship on the St. Louis. And his wife was also a refugee. And I asked her a question about it, and she said to me, oh, we don't talk about it much. We, we forgot about it. I forgot about it, she said. We, uh, we're fine. We're okay. We're okay. And she told me a story. She, she insisted that she's okay. She told me a story about her grandson being bar mitzvahed, being confirmed. And as she talked about him, she said, the only thing is that my mother wasn't there to see him, and she started crying. And all of the front that she had before about being so strong and okay and okay, she was not. Because this is something that goes right into your bones, into your blood. How could you forget something like that? But all of these refugees, poor people, they have to, they have to forget. Otherwise, they'd probably go crazy. It was quite an experience doing that show. One day, we were shooting in a scene in a, in a, in a barn on the on the dock in Barcelona, and uh, we were there about three four hours. While we were inside. The the crew uh, decorated the dock that is Barcelona dock with Nazi flags. We didn't know that they were doing that. But when we come out, we didn't recognize the place at all. I didn't. Standing next to me was a guy who happened to be in the camps. And he looked at these flags and the Nazi soldiers standing around. And he just started shaking. And I had a call for help because he was in bad shape. He just could not take it. It brought so much to his mind. And it made me understand how horrible, horrible it was. Horrible. To be in Germany at that time. Exactly. And I think that's why films like that and so many others are so important for people to understand, you know, especially as more and more years go by from it. And, and people don't sometimes don't realize exactly what was going on. Uh, it's, it's nice that some of this has been um, captured on film, you know, put the film or whatever, so people can see it and try to get that understanding and realize that these events did happen and, and, and they're, they're terrible events. Yeah. That's one thing about being an actor. You get to understand and try to understand so many different persons. And I, I, I hope to think that I'm a better person for having known all of these people. Uh, at 102, I feel that life is only worthwhile when you're feeling good about other people. 
If you're not, then you're wasting time. You're wasting your life. That's my big feeling is 102. Oh, I agree. And there's just, if you have time, there's two other movies I want to ask you about. Go ahead. Yentl is a movie I remember seeing when it first came out. And yeah. just enjoying so much. And Barbara Streisand did such a wonderful job doing just about everything. <laughs> yeah. What was it like uh, with, because you're, you're playing, you're playing her father in, in the opening of the yeah. movie. And what was it like working with Barbara Streisand? Well, before I got the film, I was working on another, another film. So, I didn't have a chance to study it, but on the way in, in the airplane, I picked up the script. And I just could not identify, I could not get emotionally involved in what I was doing. I was concerned about that. So when I got to London, I hung around a few days. And then the day before we were to film our scene, Barbara invited me to have tea with her in her house. I went up there, it was very informal. Uh, she sat on one side of the table on the other. We talked, and she told me about her losing her father when she was two years old and how hard it was and, and the difficult she had becoming a, a singer, having people give her a job. She went on and on, and then she said, uh, let's read. So we sat down and read it, and I picked up the script, and I said something about, you're such a good girl, Barbara, something like that. I forget what it was. Uh, the end was not Barbara. You're such a good girl. And uh, I just, tears started coming down my face. And uh, we shot the film the following day, and we did all right. And then on the way back home in the airplane, I was thinking about that, that movie, and then I thought, you know, that girl, when she talked to me at the table, she was not just talking, she was directing me. And isn't that the best kind of direction anybody could ask for? Not to know that the director is directing you. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was perfect, perfect. She just stopped at the right time. She knew she was a good director. She was good at everything she did. And she was not liked by some people because she was a perfectionist. She insisted. Yeah. And, and you can't she, argue with her work because, I mean, she, she cared so no, much about it. No. She just wanted it done the right way. The, yeah. her vision. She was she she was a lady of forty at the time when she played this young girl who shaved her head and passed as a boy. She we were sitting at the end of a table preparing for the take, and when she looked at herself in uh, in on the monitor, she said, "Look at that ugly girl! Look at that nose! Look at that face!" And still, I have a movie star. What are you going to do about that? It's strange that she should still feel it because she was always, she looked fine. I never, I never thought she was that bad. She, she really ran herself down, but uh, she had her problem, I guess. But she dealt with it fine. Well, every, I think we're always our harshest critics to ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes. 
I agree. Yeah. Now you played another Papa multiple times in an American tale. <laughs> and I, yeah. remember, I remember seeing that too growing up and you play Papa Moskowitz. I mean, it's yeah. and got to be a voice yeah. actor. <laughs> uh, well, I did that. I didn't do any others really. I did four of those, uh, uh, chapter chapters. It was fun. I didn't realize at that time that it would have such a long life. Among the mail that I get, I guess about 30% or 40 is uh, Papa Moskowitz. People want me to sign a cartoon. And I've never heard of a film of a cartoon being that popular. Apparently, that film was very popular with people. People tell me that they brought their children up on that. So it's gratifying. It's good. Yeah. It was excellent voice work in... Don Bluth did an excellent job directing it and animating it. It's it's just a wonderful family series. Yes, yes, yes. And I think what helped you so much in that role, because you played the papa who has shared his stories to his children, is you're awesome, and I, I've Thankfully, got to see this on YouTube. Your one-man show. Uh-huh. Shalom Ackerman? Ackerman? Shalom Aleichem. When I was in Australia, the publicity man came away, found a way of telling people what the name of the show was without breaking their mouths. And he said to them, the name of the show is Show Them I Like Them. And they always used to come, I'd like to two tickets to show them I like them. <laughs> show them I like them. It's, show them. It's, uh, the real thing is Shalom, peace, Aleichem on you. Peace on you is his pen name. It was, I think his real name was Moscow, not Moscow. <laughs> Something else, anyway. Uh, who was it? Solomon Rabinowitz. Solomon Rabinowitz, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, thankfully, it's on YouTube, and I was able to see it. Your your performance is all these different characters, your body language, your voice inflection changes, the bare minimum of a stage, and yet you owned the crowd. It was it was almost like a an old time t- town performance where you're set up in the town square and everybody's around you, and yeah. it was wonderful. How did you go about? doing that and that, that that obviously was such a labor well, of love yeah I, I i went to new york to do a show in naked city and my agent said that uh, jerome robbins the choreographer wants to see me to replace uh luther adler who was going to do their own company but they couldn't agree on a wage for him on a price so i went there and i read for him and he said fine that's very good he says, there's another scene later on when you come home after being drunk with uh, To Life to Life L'chaim uh, that uh, I want you to read, but uh, that'll have to wait till Friday. I said, fine. I spent all week preparing for that, and then on Friday I called my agent. He said they decided not to take you because they came to a price agreement with Luther Adler. Naturally, I was disappointed because I love the show and I love the part. On the way to the home, on the airport, I picked up a book in the airport. 
a book of stories by Shalom Aleichem, the guy who wrote the story of Fiddler on the Roof. I read it on the plane and I thought to myself, my God, this is something that needs just somebody to save the author's world. It doesn't need singing, dancing, anything at all. doesn't need a hundred people. One guy just standing, and I decided right there to do the show. I spent eight months learning it, and then on the ninth month I got a director, and I rented a theater and got a whole staff. It was all my effort, my money, and, and, and my nine months of work. So on the way there to the theater on opening night, I remember I was on the freeway in my car. And I said to myself, what a jerk you are. What makes you think that one man, you standing on the stage, speaking the words of a writer of the 19th, 18th, and 19th century, Yiddish world, what makes you think people will come and pay money to see that? I got to the theater. I was so upset. I got on stage, and before I knew it, this, the play was over. It was an hour and a half, but it felt to me like three minutes, five minutes. After the show, the critics came to a party I gave at a delicatessen around the corner, and they stayed until three o'clock in the morning. And that day, uh, it was decided I won a special critics award in L.A., and then I went to San Francisco and got reviews there. I ran three months there. And after I came home, after three months, my producer called me. He said, come on out to San Francisco. They're giving out prizes for the shows, and you may get one. I said, no, I don't want to go there. I don't want to sit there and hear everybody talk and then find that they won the awards that I did. He says, don't worry about it. You were the only one nominated. In other words, I, as the actor and the show, were the only nominated shows in a theater in San Francisco where they ran The Elephant Man and other important big shows like that. So I went there and uh, I got the, the awards and that was wonderful. And I got a, a producer took me to Australia and I did it in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide. It was a big, 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 big success. Let me tell you something else. About When I was about 70, uh, the phone stopped ringing. I thought I was going to be out of work. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, my one-man show was so successful. Why don't I do another one? So I started another show, and I rehearsed it for again for nine months and took it to San Diego, and there I went to the theater, rented, uh, hired a director and a crew and everything. Preview night in a house that had 600 seats, I had 11 people. It was terrible, 11 people. After that, I went to have dinner with my producer, my director, and uh, I found in the middle of our conversation that I could not speak. The words would not come out of my mouth. That lasted about 30 seconds, and then... I came to, I was able to speak all right. So I called my friend, my doctor, 11.30 at night, and he said, drop everything and come home. I dropped everything, went right home, 
And the next day, he sent me to a specialist. Specialist said, get out of L.A. I don't want you to. I said, I have a full acre here with a pool. And I, uh, he said, no, 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 I want you out of L.A. He didn't, he didn't think I could handle the pressure of further acting. Anyway, after that, I moved here in the central coast of California, where I live now. I met a guy who was a painter. He invited me to join his group. I joined it, and I was bitten by the bug and started painting until 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I enjoyed that for 30 years. It saved my old age. I did not feel bad at all. I felt wonderful. My golden years were really golden because of the painting that I found, and then I started writing, and I wrote this book that we're talking about. And uh, I'm happy to say that it's got a very good sale. And As you've probably seen, the reviews are good. Oh, exactly. And that's it. And, for, huh? and also say for listeners that want to see your paintings, it's the official NehemiahPersolfPaintings.com, and I'll have the link in the show notes. You can go yes. there. You have a gallery where people can see, and you can purchase the originals, or I believe you also have copies. Right, 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 right. Or a sketch that I've made. When I, before I do a role, I generally used to sketch it out and see if I kind of make up I'd like. And uh, those uh, sketches are for sale, too. And the many faces of Nehemiah, like I said before in the beginning, listeners, you're, you got a taste of what the book is about. It's 47 chapters filled with lots of different stories about his journey through life and being self-reflective, how certain things were, you know, it's, it's you know, um, have an effect on them, but what you learn to turn negatives into positives and so on as you go through the journey that we all have to do. And everybody's journey is different. And I think yours is definitely one that was worth being put in a book. And I'm glad you did. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's kind of you. Thank you. And I want to thank you for taking, you know, the, the, like 90 some odd minutes with me to talk about some of your different work. And it, it's a pleasure. I mean, it, this is just, an, uh, I feel I'm so honored to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yeah. And I'm glad you read the book. I'm delighted about that. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you wrote it. I enjoyed it. And listeners, it, it's available anywhere we're, Books are sold, you know, to many faces of Nehemiah. Um, thank you, sir. And everybody, thanks for joining us on this episode. And join us the next episode where there'll be another interview or a movie review decided by the roll of a die. Otherwise, everybody have a nice day and enjoy life. Bye. Hello, this is Steve again. And I want to thank everyone for listening to this episode of Diecast Movie Podcast. And I hope you enjoyed hearing Nehemiah Persoff talk about his life and really got there and seeked out his book, The Many Faces of Nehemiah. I just want to let you know that our next episode is going to be a movie review decided by our cast of a die. And I'm joined by Dan Day, and we're going to be doing the movie Dune, 1984. So I hope everybody tunes in next week to hear that episode. And to take us out, we're going to hear a little bit from the movie The Hook with Kirk Douglas and Nehemiah Persoff, Robert Walker in it. This one is where the Nehemiah Persoff plays the captain, and he's coming to bring wine 
to the three military guys that have their prisoner of war and um, talks to them a little bit about the meaning of life. There is an offensive word used in it from back in the day, um, which was reflective of the Korean War, which the soldiers used to use all the time. So I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but it is accurate to that period. Hope you enjoy. Thanks. Bye. You tell... Oh, it's you. Enjoying your meal, gentlemen? You civilians do all right. Good grub. Yeah, and the carrots are really good. The steward was busy, and uh, this is such an excellent wine. I thought I'd bring it down myself. That's nice of you. Oh, sorry. Little cork. Little cork. He doesn't drink. A newly acquired habit, I assume. Just doesn't drink, that's all. Do you? No. Would you like... Uh, uh, you don't mind, do you? It's against their religion, ain't it? No. No, it's Mohammedans who don't drink alcohol. This kid knows everything. Except maybe a little detail like how to win a war, huh? Here you are. Why? Drink. It's good. Sure. Wasting good wine on a gook. <laughs> Strange. He doesn't like my wine, and it makes me unhappy. Why? Because anyone who disagrees with us makes us uncertain in some way, and thus becomes our enemy. It's the sickness of this century that everyone must be right and everyone else wrong. <laughs> 